have to learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, and this is a team effort. 10-5, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball. It's bobsled time. Oh, no. What's the word, movie nerds? And welcome to the 16th episode of Scoring at the Movies, the every couple of weeks sports movie podcast. Sports movies podcast? One of those. We peruse movies that came out in our younger days and give our old man thoughts about them now. And we are spoiling assholes. And old men. I'm the white-ass Canadian who's never had aspirations to rocket down an icy tunnel, Ryan Ellis. And here's the man who's never had aspirations to foot race in the Olympics, Christy Gregorio. Thank you, Ryan. You had me so worried for a moment there. You're going to go full Rasta on me, and I felt a little uncomfortable. I do agree. I've also never felt the inclination to rocket down an icy tunnel. And I've seen you run. Which I think objectively can be described as rocketing by anyone's <laughs> estimation. But by uh, turtle standards, maybe. There's a lot of hot tunnel jokes that you can make to the opposite of that icy tunnel. But I'm not going to go there because this is a highbrow and sophisticated podcast that we do. There will be some mons in this podcast because we have Jamaicans. <laughs> Although fake Jamaicans, we'll get to that in a second. On the point of being Jamaican and old white guys... We managed to pick a movie that is 25 years old, I guess, at this point. 26, I guess, because we are now in 2019. Yeah, early. So, like, 25, 26. So, an old movie about a Jamaican bobsled team. So, a country about which I have no right or knowledge to speak. And a sport I know nothing about. (laughs) And a movie I can barely remember seeing as a kid. Irrelevancy trifecta with this one. We're trying to cover all the sports. (laughs) We've only covered a few sports twice. We haven't covered anything three times. And now we're going for the big hitters like bobsled. Well, it's also Olympics. We're covering an Olympic sport here. There's a few of those that have been made over the years, movies about the Olympics. And I guess that's what this covers as much as anything else. I don't have any Rocky Four runs, hits, or errors because we covered it pretty well on that podcast, I think. It was an hour long for a movie that's only an hour and a half long. So, like the movie itself, we were perfect in talking about it, right? Flawless. Well, Flawless. as always, there are a few little things I put on there, but nothing that was egregious, I don't think. But if you want to know what those little corrections were, then go to top100project.com. And speaking of websites, we'll talk a little bit about new websites at the end of this podcast. So stay tuned for that. All right, Cool Runnings was released by Disney on October 1st, 1993. So like I say, just over 25. I'm going on 26 years old. The movie was a very big hit, Mon. <laughs> I'll allow the passive Mons. <laughs> in a nutshell... John Candy was an Olympian. I can see it. John Candy was an Olympian. I love John Candy, but are you kidding me? Okay. Now, without getting into the specifics. Hang on. I have one more addition about this exact same. John Candy wore a skin tight outfit like these guys wear in this movie. Only in my dreams, Ryan. Let's face it. If you're going to be an Olympian as a man of John Candy's size, don't you want it to be in a sport where all you're doing is trying to throw yourself down an icy slope as quickly as possible? Use like, gravity. It is ironic that his character in that movie got his medal stripped from him for adding extra weight to the bobsled. We shouldn't fat shame, but it's just funny to think that he was at his biggest point. It's too bad because John Candy was at the end of his career. This was his last finished movie. It isn't his last movie that he made, period. Wagons, but it was the last one that he, Wagons East, he was making East, when yeah. he died. And he's also in Canadian Bacon. So online it talks about how Wagons East was the last thing he was making in the sense of it was still in production. Yeah. But Canadian Bacon came after both of these movies, Cool Runnings and Wagons East. In release date? 
Yeah, so yeah. maybe they made it around this point. Sometimes that happens. You make yeah. a movie and years later it comes out. But this is the last movie he made and finished before he actually kicked the bucket. And it was such a shame because he was only 43 or something like that and was getting better. He was always a fun actor and a funny guy. Yep. But you watch something like Only the Lonely and even elements of this, he was going to be a pretty good actor. Some soul in that guy. Yeah, some I mean, real pathos. That's right. As much as I make fun of John Candy off the top here, I got to say, I really enjoyed him in this movie. I've got conflicting thoughts about the movie as a whole, I suppose, but I thought he did a good job in the role he was given. I thought when they called for him to be dramatic and, like you said, demonstrate some pathos, it really reminded me why he was a star. So, yeah, shame. We've gone too far without actually asking about what beer you're going to drink tonight. Oh, the important questions. Well, surprisingly enough, Ryan, it's difficult to find a bobsled-themed beer. So the closest I could do... Yeah, (laughs) shocking. closest I could do was from Cowbell Brewing... Bobcat, a red ale. I don't even know where this is from. Where is Cowbell Brewing? Blythe, Ontario. Taste it. Hmm. Scintillating podcast content right here. <laughs> Fully work inserted Some here. of that might have got cut out. What? <laughs> Wait, you're cutting this gold out? <laughs> I will toast you with my water. Ah, One of us has to work in a few hours. A rare evening recording of the podcast. Mm-hmm. By the way, the numbers on this Rotten Tomatoes-wise, 77% of critics liked the film, so not terrible. 81% of audiences. And it was 15th at the 1993 U.S. box office. Jurassic Park, which Bev and I covered only a few months ago, was number one. And Cool Runnings that year was Disney's number one film. <laughs> I can't even say it. I was going to make a tasteless joke about the giant dinosaurs beating out the giant John Candy at the box office, but I can't Stop do that. That's that just shaming. Seems, yeah, that seems mean. Alright, never mind. Well, Cool Runnings wasn't even as close to as big a hit as Jurassic Park, but for them, it was a big hit, and I read somewhere how it was their biggest, at that point, live-action movie ever, but that takes into account Mary Poppins. Now, one reason why Mary Poppins is such a big hit all-time is when you adjust for inflation, and that movie was almost 30 years before this one. Yeah. And it had re-releases that Cool Runnings hasn't had. But I don't know how that's true. But that's what it says online. In any case, this movie was quite a success. It's based on a true story. The characters, Yeah, very loosely. Because the characters' names are made up. The characters, Derice and Sanka and Yule and Junior. None of those guys actually have those names in reality. And the actors are playing Jamaicans, but all of them are native New Yorkers. (laughs) So they're all putting on fake accents. Evidently, the character that John Candy plays... He's based on reality. No, he's not. Oh, sorry, he's based on a guy who actually was an American bobsledder in 1972 and 1980. That's what I mean. Not yes. the name of the guy. There was... I don't think the scandal either. Well, not just that, but apparently the Jamaican bobsled team, in reality, was A, pulled from the Jamaican Air Force. None of the... They have an Air Force? Apparently. Okay. All you need is a few planes. So they couldn't get any actual competition-level sprinters to do this. So they got sprinters from the Air Force to compete. And they were just trained by a group of trainers. It's not like this one disgraced, wunderkind, bobsled guru that trained a bunch of four randoms. It's a little more organized than that in reality, but maybe that doesn't make for as good a movie. Or maybe it does. I don't know about you, but I was a little bit torn with this because it wants to be a comedy at times. Did you laugh much, though? No, it's not very funny. smile-inducing, maybe. There's one or two little moments. I think maybe the biggest chuckle I got, there's two times... One was when they first arrive in North America. They're encountering the freezing cold for the first time. Mm-hmm. That's cute. It's always cute. And early on in the movie, when Therese mocks Sanka by doing the little rhyme patterned after what Sanka was saying to the kids about how great he was, and it was like a derisive rhyme, and that was kind of cute. But beyond that, I didn't laugh. At the same time, 
aside from those few scenes where usually it's John Candy giving some impassioned speech to somebody about the team, I didn't find that there was a lot of dramatic emotional energy to the movie either. It wants Fair. to have it at the end. That's probably the best part of the whole film is the last scene. Yeah. But the irony is that you know they qualify for the Olympics and you know that they're not disqualified even though there are two points where those things are supposed to be happening because it's based on a true story. Now, of course, any true story that becomes often a sports movie, if you make it dramatic, it's because you've been a good filmmaker. So even though exactly. we might know this happened, look at Apollo 13. That might be the best example, not a sports movie. But we, well, I guess I knew when I saw that movie that this had happened in reality. Obviously, they came home and survived. And yet still, and I've seen that movie many times, oh my God, are they going to make it this time? That's great filmmaking. You're gripping your chair. I was actually thinking about this as I was watching the movie. And this is before I kind of looked into a little bit of the actual background of the reality of things. I was wondering if maybe this just would have been a better movie if they went full bore into kind of a dramatic biopic style of movie and just told the tale of the four guys. Because regardless of whether or not you have this disgraced coach or whether you have Olympic-level sprinters or four dudes, whatever the circumstances are, these are four Jamaicans who have unquestionably had no contact with the sport that they've never heard of, and they qualify for the Olympics. I'm sure there's interesting stories to be told on a personal level on that road and maybe just end at the qualifying. Maybe that's the entire argument. The Olympics is really about being there. It's not about winning. Well, it's about winning. But a lot of the times, it's just about being at the Olympics. I don't know when these guys got into bobsledding, but the story in the movie starts in November 1987. Yeah. And they're in the Olympics in February 1988. They've never seen a bobsled before in November. Which I think was not far off reality. The only thing that didn't make any sense was the fact that qualifying for the summer games was happening... That's why there's foot races. Right, but that would have happened after the Winter Olympics ended. Oh, really? So it would have happened yeah. in the spring then? Because that's back when the Winter and Summer Olympics were the same year. I think it was 92 when that stopped being the case, and it was alternated every two years. You have winter in yeah. 92 and summer in 94, or maybe have that reversed. But now it's every two years you have an Olympics. But back in this era, in 88, it was... Calgary in the winter, and it was Seoul when Ben Johnson was caught for right. not taking no stereos That's right. in Seoul, Korea, the same year, later that summer. I wonder about some of the choices that the screenwriters made, and I think if you made this movie today, they don't make these same choices or anywhere close to it. We just talked about the reality of the thing, and it was not these failed Olympians that were actually on the Jamaican bobsled team, so why did that have to be the case in this movie? Why couldn't you have people approach these Olympians who are training for the Summer Games and propose it and be turned down? And then you go to the Air Force or whoever you want it to be, because then you have an even bigger hill to climb, right? You've got people that aren't as athletically gifted trying to overcome a sport that they've never tried before. I would think that would add more dramatic tension. How did they get good enough so quickly when they aren't already just these gods of the track? That was the refrain throughout this movie, whether it was John Candy or the local fans, they're always cheering on these four guys, and Doris in particular, because he's the local hero. He's the son of an Olympian, mm -hmm. which I don't think has any basis in reality either. So he's already kind of the progeny of a national hero. But he's also known far and wide as being the spectacular sprinter who was going to supersede the accomplishments of his father. The Usain Bolt of his era that didn't actually make it to the Olympics. Exactly. So he's already got this godlike status and this superhuman reputation in terms of his athletic ability. You're basically, at that point, not trying to overcome the obstacle of learning the sport. You're just trying to overcome the obstacle of transitioning that athleticism from track to ice. I think it takes away a little bit of that tension and that dramatic build-up when you do that. Well, it's Disney, so they're going for the fish out of water, the reluctant mentor, 
bullied characters when they get to Calgary. Then they gain respect. It's the Karate Kid story, which wasn't Disney, but it should have been Disney probably too. Karate Kid also is a very PG story. Remember we talked about in Karate Kid months ago about how you could tell that he must have been swearing and in post-production they took it out of there because he's saying things that he wouldn't be saying. This Brooklyn kid or Queens, whatever yeah, it is, that's yeah. angry. He was saying the F word. I think he literally did on set, but they cut it out. It seemed like that was the case. This movie is not controversial at all. Yeah. And they don't have to be swearers or they don't have to be crude or those kinds of things. They don't have to be blood and violence. There wouldn't be blood and violence in this story, I wouldn't think. But Disney really homogenized this. We covered Angels in the Outfield months ago. That was also very homogenized in a baseball movie. A little more understandable considering what their subject matter was. But in both cases, they're not that funny. Between the two, this is probably the better movie. Maybe because it's a true story. It's a homogenized movie. But that's kind of my point, is they undercut their own dramatic tension by making it homogenized. If they'd left it a little bit truer to the actual origin story, I think you'd have a more interesting build-up. And they he, wouldn't have made 15, well, been 15th at the box office that year, though, probably if they had. That's the irony, is that they know, know what they're doing, and they succeeded with this movie in a way that if they'd made more of a documentary style, probably is yeah, a dud. That's what I mean. I think if you make this in 2018, you have a much more successful movie in that style. I don't think the audiences in 1993 were clamoring for that style of movie. We were pre-boom of the biopic. And right? the year after the Mighty Ducks, also by Disney, so they probably thought, let's do this again now with this true story. Mighty Ducks wasn't even a true story, yeah. but let's do the same kind of thing with this bobsled team. The other little thing I found interesting was the nearly overt racism that they inserted in basically every other bobsled team. Which wasn't based on reality either, because no. apparently, maybe this is always true about the Olympics, but certainly it was about this bobsled team, the real Jamaican bobsled team. Everyone welcomed them in. That's the Olympics for you. That generally, from what I hear, is the attitude about Olympians anyway. There wasn't this whole sort of casual racism or exclusionary, but some of the weak barbs too. Got training wheels for that thing, got to tuck them in at night. So lame. That probably comes from, like you said, the Disneyfication of the movie. You gotta be weak sauce and lame because anything harsher and you might get into language that the kids don't really like or the parents don't like for the kids. But I think it's true that the American team gave the Jamaicans a backup bobsled because they needed one for qualifying. They didn't have one. And so they just helped them out by giving them one of theirs. And of course, in this movie, part of the struggles they have to overcome is actually buying a shitty secondhand bobsled. That's a question, too, because Junior supplies the money by selling his car. And he's also yeah. the rich kid. And he's also the one that starts this whole story by tripping up two of his friends. Well, they become his friends in the qualifying race, including yeah. Doris. But he provides the money. Okay, so that means that the five of them can fly to Calgary. And they have some means. They have to eat and they have to have... Basic clothes, of course, as you said, provides the joke where Sanka puts on everything he has. And has the money for the bitchin' spandex. Well, later on, exactly. Where's that money come from? Because it seems like what Junior provides isn't that much money. Irv buys the bobsled. Maybe it is from Jamaican funds because they're providing some of it, aren't they? But then they also have those great outfits. And they got to stay in Calgary for weeks. They're there for quite a long time. They're training and qualifying. You're not supposed to think of these things, I guess. But where did all that money come from? Yeah, I know. Let's not get too deep in the weeds on the logistics, I guess. Speaking of Calgary, they actually did shoot it there. I assume probably using some of those same tracks. I don't know much about the Winter Olympics if some of these cities, they probably have, have left these facilities in place, maybe for people to train on for years and years to come. And sometimes places like Canada, we weren't doing well. These very Olympics in 88, we did not do well. We won, I think it was four bronze or three. We won something like five or six medals at a host games. Cut to 22 years later, 2010, we won the most medals and we won the most golds, especially, including the hockey goal, one of the most famous things for us. Anyone who's Canadian right now will be proud thinking about that all over again. I'm standing up and saluting right now. Right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it took 22 years from us going to being a bit of a joke as the hosts yeah. to being great at this and maybe because they could use the Calgary facilities. But they shot in Calgary 
in February and March 1993, but also in Jamaica. But shooting in the winter in Calgary, <laughs> they yeah. really earned it. I wonder, I guess no. I was going to say, was that a legitimate response to walking outside? In the well, they're New Yorkers, like I said, don't forget. Yeah, and then that occurred to me. They're New Yorkers. They've experienced worse problems. Well, maybe not worse than Calgary. Calgary can swing hard both ways as True. far as hot, cold. I think New York has worse weather than we do here in Toronto. More they often do. Than not. Yeah, we get, they're we get on some, the coast. We're not. Yeah, we get the lake effect buffer. They've been hit harder some years for mm -hmm. sure. There's no question. But just to circle back on that racism thing. It struck me that the only reason that was in the movie, as much as it was, was because they wanted to set up the slow clap scene at I the end of the movie. Up. Much like the end of Rocky IV yeah. with the Politburo. If I can crash and you can crash, everybody can crash. Just <laughs> true. It's a sweet moment. These guys have a brutally hard crash. And some of the footage, especially of the actual final wipeout, maybe the whole scene, really, whenever you see a TV shot, I think it's supposed to be from the actual Jamaican bobsleigh crash. They're lucky they weren't badly hurt, by the way, maybe even killed from it's some of that, because their heads are sticking out, and they're yeah. being bashed against that ice wall, but they are wearing helmets, at least. Yeah, but then, yes, you get the slow clap kind of thing, and everyone respects them. And just like at the end of Talladega Nights, they finish the race on foot. While singing, We Belong. We Belong. We belong. A song we're obsessed with since Talladega Nights. Yeah, it's had some unforeseen repercussions. I read a quote from one of the guys on that Jamaican bobsled team, the real team members. Okay, yeah. He talked about not even realizing it. So I guess this wasn't the driver. He would have been one of the middlemen, I suppose. Didn't even realize that they had flipped at the really? time. Really? They're going that fast, huh? Yeah, it was going that fast. And I guess your head's tucked down when you're in the middle. So you couldn't see... Didn't realize anything was necessarily wrong until he could start smelling the burning of the fiberglass from his helmet dragging along the ice. That notion that all that's between your skull and the ice is a thin, a relatively thin layer of fiberglass, and that is being friction burned away mm -hmm. from your head to the point where you can smell it happening, and that's your trigger. That is terrifying to me. No control over that. Well, they do have quite a few shots of the bobsled going down probably just the camera sitting on these bobsleds i assume going in the same speed or close to as what a bobsled actually would and it is terrifyingly fast we know next to nothing about bobsledding as mm. a sport generally nor skeleton nor luge but there have been instances and i think it happened at the vancouver winter games where a georgian bobsledder like the eastern european georgia died during one of the qualifying mm -hmm. runs because he shot off the track and hit a supporting stanchion for the track. Before right? the games even started. Yeah. That's true. Yep. There's no question. It's a bloody dangerous sport. That's one of the opening introductions that John Candy makes to the Jamaican... I guess it's like the broader assembly. At that point, he has, what, three members? He's trying to recruit a fourth. Is that right? Or is it just Doris and Sanka? When he shows the film clips... Uh, it's just Doris and Sanka because yeah. Junior and... Yule. Yule are actually watching and they do the slow walk. I'll be part of this thing. But it's actually just Doris and Sanka at that point. This sport won't break your bones. It'll shatter them. Right. That, kind of that scene's supposed to be funny. We didn't laugh, but it's supposed to be funny where they look around and no one's there anymore except for Yule and Junior. I actually think John Candy's delivery of those lines is spot on. He's watching the tape. He's reacting. A, Ooh, ah. And it's like 1930s era bobsled mm -hmm. tape at that point. But the shot of him showing the tape and all the crashes and then turning around and the room has emptied entirely. It is such an eye-rolling... No, man. Yeah. Oh. No part of this. <laughs> Come on. I don't know if you've been to Jamaica, by the way. I've been there twice with Bab on vacation. And they are really nice people. The servants of the two resorts we were at, especially the first one, I would say, were so nice just randomly walking past you, which you never get in Toronto when it comes to service or just people in general. I really wondered if my wallet was showing. <laughs> hey, he's got a tip for me. No, they're just like that down there. But I like Jamaica a lot. I go back again in a minute. The two resorts we saw, awesome. That's one of the reasons off the top that I said I'm woefully unqualified to comment on a number of aspects of this movie. One Olympics, of the, Calgary, and Jamaica. And Jamaica you. in particular, because I've never been there. 
I've known and worked with a lot of people that have immigrated here from Jamaica and they're all lovely people, but I have no idea what the political climate there is, what the sporting culture is. Aside from Usain Bolt, that's as far as my knowledge of Jamaican sport goes. Didn't you say, I want to point the guys in charge of all this, that they do running and weightlifting or something like that? They didn't have winter sports, I think, at all. No, you're right. Running and something else. And I don't remember what that... It might have been weightlifting. I don't think they have that much now. They probably have more because there's just more people in every country. And the Olympics are bigger than ever at this point. I think Canada does more than we used to in all the Olympics. Oh, we yeah, were yeah. not that big in the Olympics at this point in summer or winter. Like in, I said, we are now. In terms of number of events competed in. And yeah. there are also more events that they actually allow to be Olympic events. Yeah, it's gotten to be bigger and bigger. Yeah, It's funny we talked about the dangerous crash and the burning helmet and all that. And cool runnings means peace be the journey. Ah, be cool, man. And <laughs> these guys are literally being cool by being cold, but then maybe coming close to dying. Not such a peaceful journey. But every time, Sanka does that little thing at the end saying it's bobsled time. By the way, he also says at one point, slow it down. And I think it's their initial run to Doris. But Sanka, you're the brake man. You slow it down. <laughs> That's your job. He's the steerer. Uh, that's fair. I didn't notice that. I like when they show Doris holding the controls. And it's not a steering wheel. It's just two little, I guess you'd say, cables. Yeah, it's just levers pulling on the front There's blades. only so much you can really steer with those things anyway. Obviously, oh, yeah. it matters. Every little inch probably matters with one of those things. Maybe even millimeter matters. just goes to show how little control they really have. But at the same point, that little bit probably makes all the difference in the world. I... And these guys are clearly talented athletes to get so good so fast in reality or in this movie. Yeah. We have the typical montage of hijinks where they're completely inept, but they quickly improve. Yeah, I enjoyed the scene of them training in the bathtub. They're mimicking the turns in the course. And it's like you said, the amount of control you have, I think, with the cables is probably minimal. And it's as much about shifting your weight within the sled to try to lean into or out of a turn. And at the same you... time. At the same time, yeah. That's why you see them yell out, right, and all four of them in the bathtub lean to the right and left and all lean to the left. That's going to give you as much stability probably as anything else. And if you train enough and you know the corners and the twists and turns of a track... You're going to know instinctively. You don't need to be told when to lean. You're just going to know. Yeah, and I think in this sport, at this level, these speeds, I imagine if you're going that fast into a turn, and if you're trying to react as it's happening, at best, you're going to have a slow run, right? You're not going to react quickly enough to have a clean run, so you're not going to qualify or medal. I think at worst, though, you're not going to react quickly enough and you're going to crash. So that's why you have to know in advance what each turn is, because you can't react as it's happening, I wouldn't think, right? you got to be anticipating it in advance. One of the scenes in the movie that stands out, which I guess is going for comedy, but it's a bit of a cliche too, is when they're all in the bar, the bad guys, the bullies, give Junior shit for being a bit loud in a bar. <laughs> you mean the Germans? <laughs> I think Germans are Swiss. I thought those were meant East to be... East Germans? I know that Doris idolizes the Swiss. Honestly, I don't even know if they I were... took a note of his East Germans and then, yes, you idolize the Swiss, you put them on a pedestal. So I changed my note and said, okay, is it the Swiss or the East Germans? I'm not really sure anymore. I'm not 100% sure either, but I thought the bullies in the bar were Germans. You're right, at this point, would have been East Germans. And the Swiss were just the people that he put on the pedestal. Okay. They weren't necessarily the same. So who group. gave the slow clap? That was the East Germans, wasn't it? That was everybody. Yeah, it was the East yeah. Germans that were front But they started it. They started it, yeah. And then we have the obligatory bar brawl where they do really, truly bond. We've seen that in lots of movies where sometimes the bar brawl is the reason why you all like each other. Yeah. We talked in Hoosiers a few weeks ago that when Raid and the coach seem to bond more, it's a very small moment. Because they'd been battling earlier in the film when Raid was shooting against the coach's will. But when they seemed to finally be okay with each other is when Raid punches a guy in that brawl scene on the coach's behalf. Yeah. 
So sometimes violence fixes everything. <laughs> I think that's the underlying theme of our podcast generally is, yes, <laughs> violence fixes everything. That is a silly, cliched scene and is a bit of a groaner, but it had two things in it that kind of redeemed it for me. One was that Sanka was in the background of most of it, square dancing with a bunch of women wearing a cowboy yeah. hat and everything. How into it he was made me laugh a little bit. Just being like a Jamaican guy that shows up in a country bar for the first time and is immediately into the square dancing scene. The second one was after the East Germans kind of shout down Junior and tell him to be quiet, and he meekly takes it, and Yule pulls him into the back and gives him the pep talk, fires him up, and Junior immediately runs out to confront the Germans with this newfound energy, and Yule looks at himself and goes kind of like a silent, uh-oh, what did I just do? <laughs> and then runs out after him. Actually, might have been one of the few giggle moments. Even though there was okay. no real line there, the look on Yule's face made I didn't he... mean for that to happen. <laughs> yeah, he's trying to like give the guy a little bit of self-confidence, and instead he turns him into like a raging bull to brawl with the East Germans. Well, you've got the cliches of these characters. The soulful leader is Darice, the rich guy is Junior, the angry tough guy is Yule, and the clown is Sanka. Yeah. Dougie Doug, who was a bit of a thing at this point, didn't really make a whole lot of movies, did some TV shows, and also worked with Spike Lee a fair amount, I guess, looking at his resume. What do you think of the four actors? Leon, he just goes by Leon, that's Darice, Dougie Doug, Malik Yoba, who's Yule, and Raul Lewis, is Junior. Yoba and Lewis are making their debut in this movie, too. And none of these guys did a ton of films. Leon was in Cliffhanger the same year as one of the villains, and was in a lot of football, basketball, and baseball movies, so he did a lot of sports stuff. But what do you think of the four actors in these roles, playing Jamaicans, and they're not Jamaican? I'm not going to comment on the Jamaican aspect of it because I don't know how accurate that portrayal was. I thought they were okay. The weakest of the four I thought was the junior actor. I liked him in that one scene and it was cute. By and large, I found him a little bit whiny and annoying, mm. which he's supposed to be to a certain degree. That's kind of his character's arc. But even at the end of it all, when his father comes to Calgary to collect him and drag him back to Jamaica to take his brokerage job or whatever it was that he'd arranged for him. And this is after the Yule pep speech where he's mm -hmm. given a backbone. And they're in the elevator. He turns to his father and says, Father, what do you see when you look at me? And the father says, I see a, a lost boy or something to that effect, right? And instead of saying in a sort of strong and meaningful way, you're wrong, I'm this, this, and whatever, he goes, no, father, tell me what you see. He sounds like the whiniest little petulant child. He sees what you are, man. You're a whiny little punk ass <laughs> doofus at this point. I don't care what you all just did to you. You're coming across as a petulant child. Mm. And he never came across as anything else throughout the entire movie, with the exception of that one moment with you all. But throughout the whole thing, he was just petulant. They so, all seem noble at the end, though, I would say. All four of them. I mean, yeah, that last scene. As they carry the bobsled of down. Of course. I thought Yule was the strong, silent, tough guy. He had some fun little growth moments towards the end of it as well. Sanka, I actually enjoyed a little bit more than I thought I would. Early on in the movie when I saw him, I did a little bit of an inner groan thinking it was going to be like a 90s slapstick character. And he was a little bit with his lucky egg and stuff like mm. that. But I thought he actually pulled off most of his stuff pretty well. I actually kind of liked the way that his character served as almost the moral compass would be the wrong thing to say, but he was the compass for Doris, right? The heart of the team, too. Yeah, no Doris. Well, Doris is the heart of the team, but well, he needs Sanka to help him be the heart of the team. I don't even know if that's true, though. Doris is the leader of the team, and he's the most talented member the of the brain, team. The brain, maybe, then. He's the brain. He's the Sanka's one that, the heart. Yeah, but Sanka's the heart. And Doris wants for all the world to be the Swiss team, and he wants the eins fine, dry, and mm. away you go, and like a well-oiled mechanical machine. And I thought it was a nice touch that 
they had Sanka say, the Swiss do what the Swiss do. We're not the Swiss. We got to do what we got to do. And then they get better really fast. Yeah, which is start being a, themselves. Of course, highly unrealistic, but it's nice to see that we're going to do it our way and succeed. And it was a cute little message, however fictionalized it might be. The whole feel the rhythm, feel the rhyme, something, something, it's bobsled time. That's his thing every time they go down the track. Yeah. It was a nice little callback to what was it, the derby racing that Sanka was involved in? Cart racing? Cart racing, yeah, yeah. He thinks he's going to be the one that drives the bobsled, but instead he's the opposite. He's the brakes. Exactly. He's not the steerer. That's the rhyme he sings out when he's cart racing. Feel the rhythm, feel the rhyme. It's cart racing time. Mm. And then away he goes with the kids. And they just transfer it to the end. Yeah. Know, it was a nice little callback to home. And we're going to do it the Jamaican way. Did you know that this is the same Olympics, incidentally, where Eddie the Eagle competed? He had a lot of underdogs. And Eddie the Eagle didn't do well in the end either. But it was all about him being there. The Olympic spirit about these guys and about him just being there at all. That's a movie I don't think we've talked about doing before. I mean, it's obviously a much more recent movie. Yeah, so a couple years ago, yeah. But that might be an interesting one I to touch on. I think it's Hugh Jackman who plays his mentor, and is it Taron Edgerton or it something is, like yeah. that? It is, Taron Edgerton and Hugh plays Jackman. Plays Eddie the Eagle, yeah. yeah. It would actually be kind of an interesting comparison to this, not necessarily because of the sport, but because, like you said, it's two similar story arcs. You've got two protagonists, or sets of protagonists, in the case of Cool Runnings, that have no connection to a sport, decide they want to undertake it on behalf of their country, with no support from their country, get to the Olympics and don't do very well, but it's a very similar arc all the way through. And you've got, in both instances, the Hugh Jackman or John Candy characters, the outcast, former competitors. Get a second chance. Yeah. And those guys just making it there is the victory. Exactly. Although the cool running characters, I'm not sure if this is based on reality, but in this movie, that run where they crashed, had they done really well there, they had a shot at meddling. So they were the underdogs, but could have actually got a bronze, a gold, or a silver. Yeah, that's not true. But in the movie, that's what they're saying. Yeah, in the movie. In reality, I think... In their three runs, they had the third worst time, the second worst time, and the worst time. Okay. And then in the fourth run, they crashed. Still qualifying for the Olympics. That's an unbelievable feat. No, I think qualifying in and of itself was an enormous success. And that's why, you know, off the top, I was thinking, if you were to remake this movie in 2018, more of a biopic style, do you almost end it? Or maybe just you qualified for the Olympics, and then as you're racing, what's it called, the running start or whatever? Mm-hmm. That's where you cut? That's where you cut to credits. credits and you don't even get into the whole... Crash in the fourth People run. criticize Color of Money for not having a big match between Cruz and Newman. Well, they do have a pool game, but Cruz throws it. Yeah. And then it ends on a freeze frame where it's they're going to have their final big match and they don't actually do it. You know what other great movie does that, Ryan? Rocky Three. True, but we found out what happened. Although maybe that was a lie. And then in Creed, he did. He Ex- won. Exactly. Although maybe know. he was lying. Who knows? We still haven't seen it at this point, by the way. Just before New Year's, we're recording this podcast. Creed 2. But we both will see it one of these days. And if it does affect our Rocky Four podcast, we'll talk about that in a future podcast, I guess. And correct ourselves and probably flail ourselves for you and say we were so stupid yeah. for not knowing. Much to my chagrin, I've been exposed to a few small spoilers from Creed 2. And I think it's already very clear that we might have made a mistake by not seeing that before talking about Rocky Four. Mm. We may have done a bad job, Ryan. <laughs> I think it was a fun podcast, Chris. It was an hour long and the movie's now and a half. <laughs> We really got thorough. <laughs> now, the cast in this movie, I don't think this was ever going to happen, but I read this online, could have been Denzel Washington and Eddie Murphy as Darius and Sanka, and then Wesley Snipes and Marlon Wayans in the other two roles. Man, Denzel was a star. Eddie Murphy had already been a star for a long time. Wesley Snipes was, yeah, he was a star too. Marlon Wayans, not so much maybe, but was a name in some ways. Can you imagine that cast? The budget would have ballooned though. I also would have loved to have seen the brawl scene in Calgary with Wesley Snipes. Just going full blade on uh, on all the Germans. 
So when did White Men Can't Jump? When did that The year before, 1992. It was 92, right? So it would have been an interesting sequence of sportish movies for Wesley Snipes if he had Mm. taken... Having played in Major League as a baseball player. Yeah. Basketball player. And then this... We talked a little about John Candy, but one more thing I want to say about him is it's unusual for him to be a straight man in a film like this. It's an interesting character turn, really. You say he has a few laugh moments. We didn't really laugh. Maybe you're supposed to. I guess you're supposed to laugh. But it really is a supporting part. He's top bill because he's John Candy. Have you seen Only the Lonely? Have you seen no. his small role in JFK? Well, if you've seen JFK, you've seen that small role. Yeah, I've seen that. You should see Only the Lonely, though. That's what I would definitely have to say. Maybe his best ever work. Oh, no, no, no. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is his best ever work. That movie mm-hmm. kills me. I watch that every American Thanksgiving. I know the movie so well now, I don't really laugh that much anymore, and it doesn't even quite affect me emotionally like it used to. But John Candy, what it does, inside, kills me because that poor man, he's so wonderful in that film. And he is funny, too. In this movie, he's got a little of both some comedy, some pathos. None of it really truly coalesces, but I think it's a pretty solid performance by the guy. To me, he's the best individual part of the movie from an acting perspective, certainly. You really throw me for a loop with this planes, trains, and automobiles thing, though. You don't laugh anymore at the those aren't pillows line. Oh, I still laugh at some of the lines. I still love, but I can quote it. You know what it is? In some of the great movies, like Big Lebowski, I still laugh, but I'm also quoting the movie either literally out loud or in my own head. Yeah. In planes, trains, it's the I want a fucking car <laughs> right fucking now. So when I saw that a few months ago or a few weeks ago, I guess. I had to be in sync with them saying it because I want to know that speech by heart. So I wasn't laughing at it so much as just doing the thing. Yeah, there's so many great movies. I don't watch it as often as you do, but when I do, there are certain scenes that never fail to actually make me laugh out loud or almost want to cry. That is John Candy. I like me. My wife likes me. Yes. That kills me when you know where it's going and at the end, Dad, what are you doing here? Why don't you go home? I don't have a home. Or he's been dead for eight years. Yeah. God. This poor guy. This was going to be possibly one of our great character actors had he lived. It's such a shame that he died at 43 or something like that. Yeah. And it was 94, 95. 94, I think, when he died. Because he was already giving us some interesting performances. He had been good before. Granted, the comedies like Splash, like the other ones we just mentioned. But then only the lonely with some real depth. Yeah, there's comedy, but some real good pathos. And then a performance like this. A little different kind of thing. Yeah. He might have been one of the actors you look at and say, man, Kurt Russell, Jeff Bridges, John Goodman, John Candy. And unfortunately, yeah. he's been dead for 25 years now. It's one of those what-if things. People much more learned about acting and movie making than I, I often hear say things like, it's easier to be a comedian acting in a straight role than it is to be a dramatic actor and be funny. Yes. It's so rare. Not just an actor that can do both things in different movies, but an actor that can be so funny in one movie and then turn the dial and then towards the end of the movie be so dramatically empathetic and make you feel so strongly like John Candy does in that movie. And playing strange, yeah. Yeah, and to a much lesser degree in Cool Runnings. But he does something similar. There are certain scenes where he's playing it for comedy and certain scenes where he does a very good job of playing it for drama. But it shows you, like you said, the depth of talent that this guy had and how sad it is that we didn't get to see it through all the way. Pretty good camaraderie with these guys, too. On screen, it looks that way, certainly. He seems to fit in pretty well with these guys, even though they're nobody actors for the most part, and he's John Candy. Yeah, but from everything I've ever heard about John Candy is that he was essentially the nicest guy you'll ever Mm -hmm. meet, regardless of how big a star he would have been. Certainly in Canada, I don't know how big or well-regarded he was in the States, even though he was obviously working regularly. Up here he was a god, though. Up here he's a god, but this is an American production, Disney production, obviously. 
So I don't think it's ever a situation where you have an ego. I think he was probably the kind of guy that would just welcome you with open arms and do everything he could to make, make the, the movie as good as it can be. Exactly, yeah. The guy trying to make the movie the best he could be was John Turtletaub, the director, who did Phenomenon with John Cant who did Phenomenon with John Travolta a few years ago. Now that would have been a different movie. Phenomenon with John Candy. <laughs> Him and Kira Sedgwick having a love affair. <laughs> a but I love Phenomenon. Movie. I'm a big Phenomenon fan. That movie is a little manipulative too, like this one is, but I'm a big fan. And then he went out to the National Treasure movies. I think he did both of those. And I didn't know this was him, but The Meg, that shark movie from last year, was him, John Turtletaub. So he's had an interesting career. And I think he did an okay job with this movie, but he didn't really make us laugh. So I guess there's a bit of a minor failure there. That's fine, I suppose. The writers are not really big names. Lynn Seifert and Michael Goldberg. But Tommy Swerdlow is another name who wrote this. And he was one of the writers on the 2018 Grinch. He's still in theaters as we record this podcast. Uh, we don't need to say anything about it. I just had to make that point. I like to talk about the writers and directors. The thing I should talk about next is a big part of the movie is the end credit song, I Can See Clearly Now, which became our big radio hit when this came out. It did. That I remember from this time period. The biggest hit out of this movie, actually, was probably that song. And not quite to the level of We Belong from Talladega Nights, but it's one of those songs you kind of want to put on your phone. You think, oh, I don't actually have that. Maybe I should download that, which I didn't do, but God knows I might at some point because it is a pretty cool little tune. Did you find it interesting that Hans Zimmer got a credit in this movie? As a composer? No, yeah. I didn't, I didn't write that down. Okay. He had done Rain Man. Or and was it was... John Williams? No, it wasn't John Williams. Shit. It couldn't have been. Okay, no so then it's Zimmer. I knew it was one of those two names that popped up, and it blew my mind, because it was during the opening credits, right? Okay. There was a reggae track playing, and I thought, <laughs> there's no way that Zimmer wrote this. I think he composed one song, and I don't know where in the movie this song comes up. It must have been some instrumental score, maybe during the training montage. But he got first billing as far as the composer credits go he's a multi-talented guy he's had some interesting credits in his resume the year after this he does lion king zimmer he won an oscar for that oh, for his score. For he's got some spectacular stuff chris nolan movies now i have very few musical bucket list things i understand the hans zimmer in concert experience is supposed oh, yeah? to be spectacular okay He's got such a library to pull from. I guess it'll be very akin to watching a John Williams yeah. in concert. They both write a lot of scores, so there's so much of a wealth of things. Yeah, if you just take the to. hits out of it, I'm sure you can pull together an extraordinary orchestral concert, mm -hmm. right? This movie was also nominated for the top 100 genres in the sports category, so we're eventually going to cover all those, maybe. We've covered a few lately that didn't make it. I guess it's a fair choice. It's good to have different sports in there. You can't just have football, baseball, boxing all the time. A lot of that stuff on that nominations list, and we've covered a fair amount of those kinds of sports. But here's yeah. bobsled in the Olympics, a little different. Top 100, eh? Well, nominated. Didn't make it. Oh, it didn't make it. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I misheard that. Oh, anytime we talk about movies that made it, and we've covered six now already. But and I covered a few of them before. Top 100 sports movies. The now. Top 100 genres was that show the AFI did, okay. but then they broke it down into 10 different genres. So it was courtroom, it was sci-fi, it was animated, and then they had sports. Okay. Raging Bull, Rocky were number one and two. Yeah. Field of Dreams, I believe, is one of them. Bull Durham definitely was. No, Field of Dreams was in this fantasy category, actually. Interesting choice there. Yeah, well, some of them do cross over. Yeah, I get the cross Some of the movies that belong in one category. and The Lord of the Rings is in fantasy, but it just as easily could have been in the epic category of that show. Yep. All right, well, I guess that's it for the podcast. What else can we really say? That's last thoughts on our cool runnings. We often say, could you score at this oh, point? I didn't ask you that, yes. I think it's safe to say... It's way too Disney. Maybe. What inspired you to want to score? There's a lot of talk in this movie about Doris's ass. There's a chance. You'd have to act quick. Okay. Because after the first 15 minutes or so, it goes full board Disney and you're done. Yeah. And he's a fast man. You can't catch him anyway. Yeah. It's not a bobcat of a beer. It's like the movie equivalent of a Coors Light. 
Yeah, that's very true. It goes down smooth and easy, but leaving little to no aftertaste afterwards. <laughs> we won't think about this movie very long after we finish recording this, or posting at least this podcast. No. How was your cowbell? What's this again? The Bobcat, Bobcat beer? It's refreshing. It's a lot more flavorful and interesting than maybe aspects of this movie were. Okay. I feel like I've picked on it a lot, and there's, I think, choices that would be made differently depending on the generation that makes it, but it's like the definition of an inoffensive family movie. Yeah. At its core. Like Angels in the Outfield. It's impossible to hate it, but it's too cutesy and not nearly funny enough. Yeah, exactly. It's but like, it's a family film, so it's not really our thing. It's playing to the toddlers, and we're not toddlers. That's exactly. Well, toddlers is maybe a little extreme, but it's playing to the kids. So maybe it succeeds at what it's trying to do in being that family-friendly, mass-appeal movie, but it doesn't really make any interesting choices. It doesn't make any controversial choices. It doesn't take a stand on anything. For all those people that you're going to see Jurassic Park or The Fugitive or a few months after the Schindler's List but wanted a different kind of film and something they could take their kids to. It was Cool Runnings. Exactly. Okay. I'm a little surprised, actually, it was nominated for the Top 100 list. I know you said it didn't make it. I'm surprised it was nominated. I think it's 50 nominees that could have made the Top 10 of the Top 10s. It's something like AFI's 10 Top 10 or something is what they call it on their website. Even so, I'm pretty sure if I sat down and gave it 10 minutes of thought, I would come up with 50 sports movies. Maybe that... one day we'll actually cover the ones that we'll probably never actually watch and discuss if you even know what they are. I think I've seen most of them. If they even should have been recognized with a nomination and some of the ones that weren't recognized with a nomination. Yeah. Or we'll pick something that maybe I've seen and you haven't watched it randomly. Bev and I have done that plenty. A lot of the movies that she and I have covered, she'd never even heard of or certainly had not seen. And rarely have we done something, if not never, have we done something that I haven't seen before. So almost always I go in knowing something about this movie, maybe knowing a lot, and a lot of times she's the newbie. Well, that could be you. That could be you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, dare I dream. You know, a good example in a movie I'm sure you'll like is North Dallas 40. North Dallas 40 is a damn good movie from the late 70s with Nick Nolte. And I bet you haven't heard of it, have you? Never heard of it, but you mm -hmm. had me at Nick Nolte. Mm -hmm. Those I think teeth, you'll like it. Can't say no. Good film. All this talk of lists and obscure films and stuff like that. But we should look at doing either like a personal draft or a personal list of your top tens and why and what attracts we you to that, that movie. AFI notwithstanding, just your favorite yeah, top yeah, ten no, sports not, movies. Not critiquing yeah. anybody else's list, because I'm sure our list will be similar in a few movies, but probably very different in most of them. Largely because you have a much deeper knowledge of movies than I do, so you'll probably have some obscure picks that I've never heard of. But I'm sure we also have differing tastes in what makes a movie good or bad. So I think it'll be an interesting exercise at some point. Maybe we'll get into at least... 30 or so movies we cover in total. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I mean, later this year. Just one minute by synopsis. synopsis. Seven episodes movie movie. like that. We did a Movies We Hate podcast a couple of years ago, which people seemed to like pretty well. And it wasn't an actual movie podcast. It was talking about movies in general that we didn't like. That's a great idea, too. We could also do the inverse and do a probably a much shorter list because I don't know if I want to <laughs> go through 30 movies I hate, but, you know, like maybe a top 10 overrated movies or movies we didn't like. Because mm. I'll tell you what my number one on that list would be for sports Raging Bull. Okay, fine. I hate that movie with a passion. It's funny, that one is beloved by critics, but I know a lot of people that either don't like it or haven't seen it, or if they have seen it, they say what you just did, which yep. is, fuck that movie in the face. I love the hell out of De Niro, but I don't understand the love for that movie. You just said it's number one on most people's sporting and movie lists. Yeah, the AFI's list, that was number one. And if you asked a lot of movie buffs, I'm sure they would say the same thing, in the sports category at least. I have very different feelings about it, but... Mm -hmm. We'll save those for... Yeah, well, maybe we'll do that in the time. summer or the fall of this year or some other time down the road. Yeah, when we feel like a change of pace. So in two weeks, I'll be on vacation a long way from this cold-ass country, but we're still aiming to air a podcast on January 24th. But not in Jamaica. 
I'll be in Cuba. Think of the synergy we could have had. Trip. Yeah, if we'd gone, well, I would have been fine going to Jamaica, but we did pick Cuba. So if the Wi-Fi there is shitty, I might not get it up until we come back on the 27th or maybe even the 28th, but I'll aim for the 24th. So those who are that obsessed with us that don't have a podcast on Thursday the 24th, you'll know why now, and we'll get it up there only a few days later. In any case, our next effort will be our second football movie as we gear up for the Super Bowl. And this worked out well because we were going to cover this at the end of last year, but now it's going to be right for the Super Bowl. And it is The Longest Yard. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. I only saw this once a long time ago, and luckily enough, TCM, Turner Classic Movies, had it on. So it's on the PVR right behind us, and I'm going to watch it maybe with you in this place. Maybe we'll watch yeah. our first ever movie together. We should do that. That's an interesting experience. Bev and I have watched every single movie we've ever covered together. I didn't think I was going to do that with her. I thought she watched them on her own when we got to say Forrest Gump or Wizard of Oz or movies I've seen so many times, but I've watched every movie we've ever covered with her. And you and I have not yet once watched a movie together. No, and honestly, I preferred it that way initially. We don't talk about these things before we sit down. We watch and then we talk it out, right? With the mic running. So I was kind of interested to see how our viewpoints would play out as we started up this podcast to begin with and hadn't done any of them. It would be interesting to see if we watched it together, because undoubtedly we'll talk about the movie as we're watching it, I'm Mm -hmm. sure, or thereafter, and then... Maybe our discussion when recording might be somewhat more coherent and <laughs> concise or instead tainted. of rambling and all over the place. Yeah, I look forward to that one. It'll be a bit of an in-memoriam for Burt Reynolds, too. Yeah, only a few months ago he died. And this was when he was starting to become a major star. Maybe yeah. he already was a major star because he had done Deliverance, and this was a couple years after that. He certainly was a huge star in the years that followed this movie. I think this may have been what put him over the top, along with Deliverance, as a big player. So you can follow me at MovieFiend51 on Twitter, and Chris has announced, well, he mentioned this last podcast, but now it's definitely official as of today, recording this at the end of December. Our new Twitter address is... At Scoring at Movies. Yeah, not at the, but Scoring at Movies. That's right. Scoring at Movies. We'll hopefully be posting our sports-related, movie-related, podcast-related material on there fairly regularly. Well, not on there. We're going to try to find a website... And a whole different provider. Right now, we're going to stick with this provider. We'll get this at some point. We don't know when for sure. It might be before the end of January, maybe later on down the road. But if you're going to stick with us, you're going to have to find a different way of doing it than just going to the Top 100 Project feed on Apple's podcasts. And Libsyn is our provider, top100project.com website. Trying to sort out the scoring at the movies empire in Mm. a more coherent way. This is on you. I got lots of other things to do. (laughs) So with any luck, it'll be scoringatthemovies.com. Try to keep it as easy as possible. Which you said we could get if we wanted. Yeah, scoring at the movies at gmail.com, scoring at the movies.com, scoring at movies. Let's keep it very consistent. So stay tuned for that then, everybody. Yaman. Yeah, Yaman! Yeah, <laughs> feel the rhythm, feel the rhyme. <laughs> it's bobsled time. Oh, feel the rhythm, feel the rhyme. Something, something, it's bobsled time. I'd love to scream out it's podcast time, but I can't think of the rhyme. Take your easy dudes. I know that you will.